I had a feeling it was. Well, we are in the Gospel of John chapter 3, and we left off right around uh, verse 32, I think it was. So where we are is we're early in the, in the, um, early in the ministry of the Lord Jesus. Um, we've just seen the meeting with Nicodemus last week, who is a religious leader. He's wealthy. He's powerful. He's knowledgeable about the scriptures. And Jesus tells him, you got to throw all that out. You must be born again. That's early in chapter three. We've come through all that and we're left with kind of hanging there. We don't know what happened to Nicodemus. As we said last week, we, I believe that he became a believer because he sticks up for Jesus when there's a meeting later on in the, this gospel of the Jewish leaders. And also he and Joseph of Arimathea anoint the body of Christ at their own expense and stick their necks out going to Pontius Pilate to say, can we please have the body of Christ, uh, the dead body of Christ? So um, now we have been talking after that, starting in verse 22 about John the Baptist, and he testifies about Christ as well, uh, very humbly. What happens is there's a little temptation for John the Baptist, um, starting around verse 25. We'll pick it up there. Those of you that are here and those of you on zoom, so I know you're awake, say amen. amen. Good one. Verse 25 says, an argument developed between some of John's disciples and a certain Jew, Jew over the matter of ceremonial washing. They came to John and said to him, Rabbi, that man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, he's talking about Christ. Um, let's see. Look, he is baptizing and everyone is going to him. So there's a little temptation there that there's going to be ministry competition. Jesus now has better numbers than we do, John. Do we need to start a new program or give away free sandwiches after church? To this, John replied, verse 27, a person can only receive what is given them from, from heaven. And that's true uh, on a, in a general sense. Everything you have, talents, gifts, money, people around you, a house, food. It's all a gift from God. James talks about that in his epistle. But he means it in the context of ministry, that a ministry is given by God for his purposes, and ministries come and go and ele are elevated and some are not. Verse 28, you yourselves can testify, John the Baptist says, I'm not the Messiah, but I'm sent ahead of him. The bride that's the church, those who believe, belong to the bridegroom. And that's Christ is what he's saying. The friend who attends the bridegroom, he means the best man, meaning himself, waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine and is now complete. And then here comes the great Christian bumper sticker in verse 30. He must increase, I must decrease. He must become greater I must become less. The less you see of me, the more you see of Christ. That's true for all of our lives, the better it is. So uh, John the Baptist doesn't take the bait. He's, he's so humble. He wants Christ to get the spotlight, not himself, uh, for obvious reasons. And he's going to explain those reasons now because it all comes down to where are you from? Look at verse 31. The one who comes from above, meaning from heaven, meaning Christ, is above all. The one who is from the earth, meaning himself, belongs to the earth and speaks as one from the earth. The one who comes from heaven is above 
all the superiority over Jesus Christ, the name that's above every name we read elsewhere in the New uh, Testament. Let me grab my notes. Verse 32, he, that's Christ, John the Baptist talking, he talks about Jesus and he says, he testifies to what he has seen and heard. Eyewitness testimony about heaven, about God, about salvation, about everything. He's saying my ministry is earthly, his is heavenly. It, he is a trillion times greater than I am and above me. Um, interesting verse 32, he testifies to what he has seen and heard, but no one accepts his testimony. Now there's two schools of thought on that verse. School of thought number one is it's hyperbole. It's an exaggeration. What he means by no one is comparatively very, very few um, Jews believed in the Lord Jesus. Even in the world population today, um, less than a third of people on planet Earth are Christians. A majority go the broad way. Jesus talks about in the Gospel of Matthew. So he couldn't mean that comparatively few um, believe his testimony. The other school of thought is that he means exactly what he's saying here. No one um, believes or no one uh, accepts his testimony. Remember, this is early in the ministry of Christ. Do the apostles or even John the Baptist fully understand who and what Jesus is and what he's about to do, die on the cross, rise from the dead, pay for the sins of the world? It could mean that as well. Um, but in either case, there is certainly not broad acceptance of his ministry and testimony is what he's saying. Even though he's from heaven, John knows. Um, remember that later in the, in the Gospels, um, we read that John the Baptist, while in prison, has some doubts. Do you remember that? He sends a few of his disciples to go to Jesus and say, hey, are you the guy or should we look for somebody else? Because he's surprised he's in prison. Jesus isn't acting maybe or as quickly as he thought he would as Messiah. Even he has doubts. But in the end, of course, he believes. Uh, verse 33, whoever has accepted it, meaning his testimony, Christ's testimony, has certified that God is truthful. Okay. Did you see the connection there? Whoever has accepted, you would think it would say, whoever has accepted Jesus's testimony has certified that Jesus is truthful. That's not what it says. It says, whoever has accepted Christ's testimony, what he says about himself, his teaching, ultimately his sacrifice and his resurrection, whoever has accepted Christ's word testifies that who is truthful? God the Father. Why is that? What's implied there is the words that come out of Jesus Christ's mouth are the words of God, unfiltered, every bit as much, right? Jesus has the audacity to say later in this gospel, he that has seen me has seen the Father. Hebrews 1 says Jesus is, listen, the exact representation of the Father. Not close, not similar, exact. You want to know what God the Father is like in this verse? Watch Jesus. Watch the way he is with people. He's angry at religious hypocrisy. Remember when he cleansed the temple? He's also so gentle and so loving. He is God in a man's body. If you accept his testimony, if you accept Jesus Christ, you are certifying that God's true. What's 
Implied there is, if you say no thanks to Jesus, I don't think it's true. What you're doing is calling God a liar, in essence, which no one would ever want to do. The person that says, well, you know, I believe in God. I just don't want Jesus. It's an impossibility, right? Um, verse 34, for the one whom God has sent, talking about Jesus, speaks the words of God, not close. He speaks the word of God, the words of God. For God gives the spirit, meaning the Holy Spirit, without limit. Okay, two things there. Did you catch the Trinity in that verse? God the Father, God the Son, he gives the Holy Spirit. The doctrine of the Trinity is that there is one God, but that one God is revealed to us in a way we can't fully understand because we have tiny brains, especially me, that there are three personages, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and they, the three personages are the one God. And here's the third plank people forget. The three personages of the Trinity are eternally distinct. They're separate. There's a thing called modalism. Anybody heard of modalism? T.D. Jakes, you ever heard of T.D. Jakes on TV? Evangelist guy. He teaches modalism, which is the idea that once upon a time there was God the Father. That's all there was. And God the Father saw that there was a problem on the earth, so he put on his Jesus costume and came to earth as Jesus. And while Jesus was on the earth, there was no God the Father, there was no Holy Spirit. Then when Jesus was done dying and rising from the dead, he went to heaven, put on his Holy Spirit costume, and came back as the Holy Spirit. Clearly not biblical. The Bible says the Father and the Son love each other. The Father sent the Son. Jesus sends the Holy Spirit. Here you see three different personages, right? Uh, Jesus says in John 14, he will send the Holy Spirit. So in any case, let's go back to verse 34. The one whom God sent, that's Jesus, sent from God, speaks the words of God. Very important. Um, for God gives the Spirit without limit. Why is that in there? Because Jesus is not the fully God. Uh, he's not showing his full deity. He is in a man's body. The Holy Spirit comes upon him at baptism. Do you remember that? And the Father, by the way, speaks at his baptism. There's all three again. This is my beloved Son, in whom I'm well pleased. Hear him. Um, the Spirit descends in the form of a dove and remains on the Lord Jesus. And then there's Jesus being baptized. All three together can't be putting on different costumes. Okay, gives the spirit without limit. In the Old Testament, you have prophets, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Isaiah, and the rest. And when the Bible says that the Holy Spirit came upon those prophets at a certain time for a purpose, to prophesy to Israel, to teach Israel the words of God. They had the authority to say, thus saith the Lord. God says this. With me so far? But the Holy Spirit would only come upon prophets at a certain time for a certain period of time. David has the Holy Spirit, King David. He writes the Psalms, right? Doesn't live the perfect life. Jesus did that. But David has the Holy Spirit. He's writing Psalms. He's writing scripture. When David sins with Bathsheba, he prays in Psalm 51, please God, he's very, very sorry. He says, please God, don't take your Holy Spirit from me. No Christian has to pray that. You believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. You've been born again. The Holy Spirit lives inside of you permanently. He unpacks and stays. When we sin, we grieve the Holy Spirit, but he does not move out. Got the picture? 
Um, so the, the prophets of old got the Holy Spirit in measure. Even the rabbis wrote that exact term, meaning for a period of time, they prophesied. However, Jesus is given God, has given Jesus, sorry, the spirit, notice the end of verse 34, without limit. That had never happened before on planet earth. Jesus has the Holy Spirit to the full. He's filled with the Holy Spirit. For that reason, he speaks the words of God earlier in verse 34. Let's keep rolling. Are you completely lost yet? Well, you will be. No, I'm just kidding. The Verse 35, the father loves the son. There's another reference that it, modalism can't be true. They're two different beings. The father loves the son and has placed everything in his hands. All judgment that occurs on planet Earth at the end of the world will be Christ Jesus judging people. Is it because of their sins? That was a good one. Because, because of their sins. sounded like a, a, like a percussion instrument or something. Because of their sins, yes, but the, the worst sin that can be committed is to not believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. So, Father loves the Son, has placed everything in his hands. Jesus is the creator, Colossians 1. He is before all things, that verse says, and in him all things consist or hold together. Um, pretty amazing verses. Verse 36, he's going to tie it all together in a nice package with a bow on top. Listen, whoever believes in the Son, meaning Jesus Christ, will someday have or has has present tense eternal life but whoever rejects the son will not see life for the wrath god's wrath remains on them okay i want you to notice john uh, in his gospel uses the word believe or believes 83 times it's the key word in this gospel it's not about what you do to earn salvation. You can't do that. You can't deserve it. It's all about your faith. Now, it's true that true faith will manifest itself in a changed life, in repentance, in works, and all of that. Go back to verse 36. Whoever, this is similar to what he told Nicodemus. Do you remember? God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son that whosoever, whoever, that's shocking. It should Nicodemus thought it would be whichever Jew believes this is whoever in the whole world. Whoever believes in the Son, it's about faith in Jesus, who he is and what he did, has present tense eternal life. At the end of John's um, epistle, 1 John chapter 5, I think it's verse 13, he says, after he's written this whole epistle that's sort of a midterm exam for Christians, am I really a saved Christian? In 1 John 5, 13, he says, these things I've written to you, listen to this, that you may know that you have eternal life. Now, when I went to Catholic church, I was always told it's presumptuous to say that you're saved or that you have eternal life, but there it is in the Bible. These things I've written to you that you may know that you have eternal life. This verse says, whoever believes has it. Do you believe in the Lord Jesus? Then right now you possess eternal life. Synonymous with chapter three earlier, being born again. You are now spiritually alive where you were, Ephesians 2, 1, spiritually dead. Whoever believes in the Son has present tense eternal life. Notice, but whoever rejects the Son, 
That's the dividing point. Don't get the understanding, don't get the misunderstanding going that we're the holy ones and they're the sinners. We are the sinners, they're the sinners. The only difference is we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ's sacrifice. Remember, all your sin will be judged one of two ways. Jesus paid for it on the cross or you pay forever in uh, outer darkness, apart from all things holy, apart from the presence of God, which is hell. If you believe, that's not your lot in, in the future. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever rejects the Son won't see life. Listen, this is interesting. God's wrath is going to come on them. Is that what it says? Remains on them. It's already on them. And as a matter of fact, it was already on me and you before we were saved. Why? Because we were sinners, right? Now, it's true that people are sinners to varying degrees, right? Somebody that's a mass murderer is a lot different than somebody that lies at work a little bit and, and lusts or steals or something. But we're all sinners. God's wrath remains on those who reject Jesus Christ. Um, the central thing about Christianity is not doctrine, although doctrine is important, what we believe and why we believe it. The central thing is a person and what he did and our relationship to what he did and to him. We call him Lord and Savior. Um, okay, enough of that. Shall we turn briefly there? No, I think we're okay. We'll do that later. <clears throat> Just reading my notes. We're going to start chapter four in a second, but a little... Uh, Conclusion, this is the must-read chapter. Not only because John 3.16 is in chapter 3, listen to the musts of chapter 3. The sinners must, you must be born again, right? It's not optional. You must be born again. The saviors must, John 3.14, the son of man must be lifted up. He's got to go to the cross, otherwise he can't save anybody. The sovereigns must, he must increase. The servants must, I must decrease. Kind of sums it all up, doesn't it? Chapter four is an interesting chapter. Don't, don't forget that it wasn't until the 13th century that the chapter names, chapter four, chapter three, chapter 11, and the verse numbers were added. <clears throat> they only did it to make it easier to refer to chapter four, verse 11. You can go right to it, right? The reason um, I'm saying that is chapter three, Jesus meets the ultimate insider, okay? Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. He meets the ultimate Jew, Nicodemus, right? He's a man. It was a man's world. Women were second-class citizens. Sorry, ladies, but it's a fact. In that culture, women were second-class citizens. Nicodemus is a man. He is a Jew. He is a Pharisee. He's a member of the Sanhedrin, the ruling body. He's an ultimate insider. He's also the third, also the third richest man in Jerusalem. Why are you mentioning this? Because Jesus is about to meet the ultimate outsider. A woman, a Samaritan, we'll talk about what that means, and of all the citizens of Samaria, possibly the most sinful woman there is. An absolute outsider. I'll show you when we get through chapter four, she's totally isolated from her fellow Samaritans. So what's interesting is she is considered a Gentile 
Samaritans were half Jewish. I know that's like saying half pregnant. What does that mean? I'll, we'll get to that in a second. Chapter four, but I want you to notice all the, all the um, similarities and differences between how he speaks to Nicodemus, a religious expert. Jesus calls him the teacher of, of Israel and this lady. Um, chapter four, verse one. Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. Although, in fact, it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So he left Judea and went once more to Galilee. So these are different areas in Israel. What's happening is there is an appointed timeline that God has set for Jesus in his ministry. There's a specific day on which he's supposed to march into Jerusalem on a donkey, predicted by Zechariah, uh, which is Palm Sunday, basically. And five days later, he's supposed to die on the cross. It's way too early for that, but already he's gained so much popularity. There's already going to be tension with the Pharisees. He knows it's not his time, so he leaves Judea and goes into Galilee. The difference would be like New York and Kentucky, okay? It's a little, or coarse gold, Oakhurst, right? We, we're not the big city here. Um, so he, he is not afraid of them. He just knows he's got other ministering to do. It's not his time to die yet. So uh, the other thing that's mentioned here is the baptizing. Jesus doesn't baptize anybody. His disciples do, but there is a baptism like John's of repentance, prepare for the coming of the Messiah. We said last week, probably the reason Jesus doesn't baptize is if he did, you know human nature, right? Who baptized you, Rex? Oh, that was Peter. Oh, that's pretty good. Jesus himself baptized me, right? There'd be this whole hierarchy. How about you? Oh, it was Bartholomew, whoever he is, whatever, you know, who cares, right? So Jesus doesn't do the baptizing himself in terms of the water. Um, so he leaves Judea and he goes back once more to Galilee, which is where Nazareth is. Um, uh, and it's a, quite a journey to get there. To get there, there's three routes. He's going to take the fastest route that most Jews who were uh, conservative Jews would never take. Verse 4. Now he had to go through Samaria. Okay, a little background. The truth is, he doesn't have to go to Samaria, or does he? In other words, there was th two other routes he could have taken, but to go through Samaria was the shortest route, okay? Most direct. You could go inland, you could go along the coast. He chooses to go through Samaria. In fact, it says he must, he had to go through Samaria. What's Samaria? Okay, when... Um, the Jews were taken captive by Babylon. The Babylonians came into Israel and they took the best and the brightest, the smartest, the ones with the most talent. And they left behind the really, really, really poor people, sort of the rejects that they didn't want. Okay. Those remaining Jews intermarried. They weren't supposed to. They intermarried with pagans. And their religion became a hodgepodge of Judaism and all this pagan superstitious stuff, okay? 
So the Samaria, the Samaritans lived there. They were considered by the Jews half-breeds, half-Jewish, half-Gentile. They shouldn't have married unbelievers. They did. Their religion, they only accepted the first five books of Moses, first five books of your Old Testament. Didn't anything, no prophets, no uh, Psalms, Proverbs, none of that. Okay? So they practiced their religion, um, but it was kind of half-pagan, a little bit Jewish if you will. Jews hated the Samaritans more than they hated non-Jews, which are called Gentiles, okay? Um, at one point in this gospel, the Pharisees hate Jesus so much they call him a Samaritan. So, um, so he has to go through Samaria. Technically, a Jew should not have any contact with a non-Jew, a Samaritan. Okay, so that means you couldn't eat their food, you can't drink their water, you shouldn't talk to them because then you're going to be unclean and there's a whole ceremony to get rid of that uncleanness. Jesus doesn't care about all that. Okay, okay, a hotbed word that we hear in our culture a lot today is racism, and that's pure and simple what this is. The Jews hated the Samaritans. For half of the reason was religious, the other half was just pure racism, okay? The Samaritans returned the favor and hated the Jews. They didn't want anything to do with them. Jesus takes the short route, not because he's lazy. I'll show you why in a second. He has what I'm going to call, my wife and I call, a divine appointment, okay? The thing about divine appointments, I'll just tell you, and then we'll define it in a second, is God doesn't tell you in advance, hey, Ken, Thursday, I've got a divine appointment for you. You're going to see somebody outside of Rayleigh's or Vaughn's that you haven't seen for a while. It's a divine appointment. Be ready. We don't know. Did Jesus know? Absolutely. I'm going to show you that he takes this route to teach his apostles about evangelism and about racism, but mainly he takes this route for one woman and a very insignificant woman, the last woman you would expect him to be after. Okay, so it says he had to go through Samaria. The reason is because God told him, go through Samaria. I got a divine appointment for you. I'll show you. Verse five, so he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar. This is Shechem in the Old Testament. Near the plot of ground, Jacob, that's Old Testament, remember, uh, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Jacob had given this plot of ground to his son, Joseph. Joseph's bones were eventually carried back to this area. This area had a lot of history in the Old Testament. You with me so far? Okay, so they, uh, they're going to go through Samaria. I'm sure his apostles were surprised. You sure we're going through Samaria? You know, it's unclean there. Let's go, he says. Um, despite the hatred and what have you. The Samaritans resisted Nehemiah's rebuilding of the temple. Um, and in 400 BC, approximately, they built their own rival temple um, on Mount Gerizim. That's going to get mentioned in a second. Right opposite Shechem, not far from where this well is. How pagan were they? They built this temple to practice their brand of Judaism, and they dedicated the temple to Zeus Xenius, some pagan god. In any case, verse uh, 5. Mm, so he came to a town called 
in Samaria called Sychar near the plot of ground. We already did this. Sorry about that. Jacob's well, verse six, was there. This is a well that Jacob dug and used. And Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was the sixth hour is really how the Greek reads. You may have noon. The sixth hour is noon. Jews counted time from 6 a.m. forward six hours. I'm not a math major, but that's 12 noon, right? Okay, what's the setting? There's a well there. Wells were so important. No running water. You live in a town. You have to go to the well every day. The men worked in the fields or worked with their hands. The women's job was go get the water, honey. Okay? They would carry um, pots up, fill the pots up with water, bring them back. No running water. So here it is. It's noon, the hottest part of the day or one of the hottest parts of the day. And I want you to notice it says Jesus tired. That word tired is in the Greek. It's more like exhausted. He's been ministering. He's been traveling. It's not an easy journey. He's human. We think of him as Superman, right? And he certainly is God, right? In a man's body. And he's glorified now. But in those days, he was fully human and could get tired and weary and hungry. And we're about to see thirsty, right? Full. He can't relate to you and I unless he was fully a man, but he can because he's the perfect high priest. So he's exhausted and he sat down by the well. It was about noon. I, I picture this as him sitting there going, she'll be here any minute, even though she's not even in sight yet. He knows we're going to see his omniscience in this chapter as well. Verse 7, when a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? Now, in the Greek, it's literally give me a drink, but it's not as impolite as it sounds. It really is more polite than give me a drink. It's what NIV has. Will you give me a drink? Okay, simple request. Um, He's thirsty. He's also starting the conversation. He's making the first move, right? Why is the Samaritan woman going to the well at noon? Okay, you may say, what's the difference? In that culture, it would be extremely unusual. Women all went in groups. They didn't travel alone. She's alone, number one. Number two, women went very early in the morning, cooler then, get the water for the day, Sometimes they would also go or instead go in right before the sun went down, just a little before. Later in the day, a little cooler. Why is she here at noon? Virtually every scholar I could read on this passage said she's there at noon purposely because she wants to be alone. And the reason we're about to find out is this is an extreme outcast because she is sort of the town harlot. If you don't know what that word means, I'll let you look it up. Loose woman, okay? She's, uh, she's had five husbands. In those days, remember, women had almost no rights. A man could divorce a woman. A woman could not divorce a man. So if she's divorced five times, what it means is five men have kicked her out, have divorced her. Got the picture? She may have been 
loose and sleeping with some of the other women's husbands. Everyone knows this is the sinful lady. We don't know her name. She's the Samaritan woman, right? But man, it's an amazing story. She's going there because the other woman probably would make her feel guilty, might make fun of her, certainly wouldn't talk to her. It's harder to go at noon, much hotter. That's why she's there at noon. Verse 7, when a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? Verse 8, parentheses. His disciples, John wants you to know, his disciples, and he's one of them, had gone into the town to buy food. Okay, a couple things about that. At this point, there's not 12, but there's at least six or seven disciples. Does it take six or seven people to go buy food for eight people? Seven people? No. One or two could go and stay with Jesus, right? You get the feeling he said, all of you go into town and buy food. Again, an Orthodox Jew would say, I can't. I can't have any dealings with Samaritans, let alone can I buy the food they made or grew or touched. I can't do it. He's breaking down the barriers of racism that were prevalent in that era. All of you, I want you to go into town and buy food for us for the rest of the journey as we go north which leaves him alone because he's got to meet with this woman alone. I'll show you why later. The next thing I want you to see is they'd gone into town to, um, let's see. Yeah, they went into town to buy food. They're going to have to deal with Samaritans and deal with their racism while Jesus talks to this woman. That leaves him alone. Verse 9. He just said, will you give me a drink? Verse 7, verse 9, the Samaritan woman said to him, you are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. They would be, the normal behavior would be completely ignore each other. But there's another normal behavior that we don't have in our culture, which is that a man in public, listen to this, would never talk to a woman. Even, listen to this, his own wife, not in public. When you get her alone, you can talk to her. Uh, go ahead, Ken, nice and loud. Good question. How does she know he's a Jew? Jews had tassels on their garments, uh, and there, there was certain a way to recognize a Jew versus a Samaritan. Yeah, but the tassels surely would be a giveaway. Good question, though. He asked, "How can? How did she know she was? A, how did she know he was a Jew?" So she says, "You're a Jew. I'm a Samaritan. We have no dealings. Why are you asking me?" By the way carry it through. If she draws water, he's going to have to drink out of her water pot, which was also a Jew would never do that. So she's saying, boy, this is really out of the ordinary. How is it you're asking me? You're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan. Notice woman. Another reason why this is totally in that culture. We don't do this. Is that biblical? No. Right. But for a lot of reasons, the, the men were so autonomous and in charge, they made these rules. God didn't say, don't talk to a woman, so Jesus does it. He intends to save this woman like he intends to save Nicodemus one chapter ago. So he strikes up a conversation. Will you give me a drink? 
you're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan. How can you ask me for a drink? Verse 10, Jesus answered her. If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Completely unusual response. Now he's really got her curious, doesn't he? First thing he says is, if you knew the gift of God. Okay. Have you ever, ladies, have you ever heard the saying, Oh, that guy, he thinks he's God's gift to women. You ever heard that saying? Guy that's always looking in the mirror and maybe he's the governor of a state, for example. Anyway, uh, I, I didn't say anybody in particular, but anyway, if you knew the gift of God, some people think God's gift to women. Listen, I got news for you. You know who Jesus is? God's gift to women and men right? God's ultimate gift. What's the gift he's talking about? Some scholars think it's salvation. I think it's the whole package. I think it's him. I think it's the gift that he gives, which is salvation. Um, I think it's the gospel, right? But don't miss. It's a what? It's a gift. What's the opposite of a gift? Wages. You earn wages, you receive a gift. See the difference? If you knew the gift of God, she's already going, what? What gift? And who it is. Notice there's two key things. Thing number one, God has a gift for you and who it is. What we've called this Bible study is a study on who is this Jesus, right? So the two key things are whatever this gift of God is and who Jesus is is. If you knew who I was and you knew the gift of God that he has for you, when I asked you for a drink, you would have asked me and I would have given you living water. Okay. Now, when you and I hear living water, we say hmm, living water. The Jews had a saying about living water that to them, remember, wells were very hard to dig, right? And once you dug the well, there was a certain amount of work putting the rope down with a pot and lifting it up, right? And then carrying it. Living water to a Jew was a spring. You ever seen a spring where it's just coming up by itself? Artesian wells, some people have here. Um, so go ahead, Vic. Also in the Old Testament, they refer to uh, Yahweh as a fountain of living water. Amen, I have it in my notes. They, they refer to Yahweh, he's absolutely right. Right. He, God himself, is a fountain of living water. He says that in the context of them who they're resist, they're rejecting him, and they're rejecting a fountain of living water. The thing about living water would mean, they called it living because it was bubbling up. It looked like it was alive, if you will. But the thing about it is there's an unlimited nature to it, right? I've got one pot full of water I just lifted up. Living water is it just keeps coming. Watch. So if, let's see, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Again, gift given you. There's no hint that you'd have to earn it, woman, right? Um, and, and he, the man that you're asking, if you knew who he was, he's making two things the main thing. The gift of God, we don't know what that is yet. Uh, she doesn't anyway. And who he is, although we know she doesn't. Verse 11. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. 
about 100 feet, by the way, most estimates. Where can you get this living water? Okay. What's she thinking in terms of water, right? Does he mean water? No. Living water, he means the spirit of God. Salvation, that is an, a thing that quenches, listen, your thirst. I'm going to show you that this woman might be the thirstiest human being on the planet. And I don't mean for water. We'll come back to that. You have nothing to draw with. She's thinking in terms of water, water. And the well is deep. Where are you going to get living water? Okay, there's a little bit of sarcasm here, I think, right? Because she's saying what you're saying is an impossibility. You don't have a rope. You don't have a pot. You're just sitting there by yourself, all exhausted. Where are you going to get living water? Verse 12. Now more sarcasm. Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? The implied answer is, of course not. Jacob, the father of the 12 tribes of Israel, right? Jacob gets his name turned into a change to Israel. Are you some lonely guy sitting there by yourself, dirty and exhausted? You're greater than Jacob. Um, she's making a comparison between who he is, which he mentioned earlier. And he's, she's saying, okay, who are you? Greater than Jacob? Give me a break right? And you got nothing to draw with. He gave us this well. He drank from it, his, him, drank from it himself. She's saying, she's about to say it a lot more, this is sacred ground here because of Jacob. Who are you? Okay. The location is important. We'll get back to that. Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be, there's that word, thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. If she didn't have his, if he didn't have her attention before, she's really got it now. He's really got it now. Look at what he says. Is he right? Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. Isn't that true? Of course. I don't care how much you can drink 10 gallons of water today, and tomorrow you go out and work in, uh, out in your yard, and you wouldn't say, well, I drank enough yesterday. We're constantly thirsty, aren't we? Um, it's interesting. You can go somewhere between 21 days and 45 days without food. Isn't that amazing? Now, you're certainly not having a great time after about day 24, right? My stomach's going, Vroom. 21 days, some, it depends on your health. Some people have gone 45 days, no food. But three or four days, no water, you're done. Isn't that interesting? Water is much, a much more need, important element for human beings. Okay, what's going on here? Pause. There's a guy named Blaise Pascal, okay? He's dead now, been dead a long time. He was a philosopher, a mathematician, and a Christian. And he came up with this concept that inside of every human being, 
not visible with x-rays or autopsies, but inside of every human being's soul, listen, there's a vacuum. There's a hole. Every human being, whether they admit it or not, recognizes something's missing. Okay? Every human being. You say, oh, well, if that's true, why doesn't everybody come to God? Because everybody chooses their own way to fill the hole in their soul. Some do it, but if I can just earn more money, if I can just have more success, if I could just have a trophy wife or a trophy husband or four cars instead of three or a better job or maybe two PhDs or political power, then I would do it. Or fame. There's a famous quote from Madonna, the singer who said she felt that way, and she was sure if she became famous, it would all go away. And she became famous and powerful and incredibly wealthy, and she said every morning she still woke up and felt like, what's missing now, right? Why are famous people so screwed up? Drugs, alcohol, 16 marriages, and all kinds of crazy behavior. They tend to die young, don't they? I believe because they thought fame was the thing. If I could just get to be famous, I'll fill up that hole. Pascal's hole in, vacuum in the soul, he called it. People stuff drugs in there. Lust, sex, alcohol, pornography, you name it. It's different for everybody. But if people are honest, they, they would admit, no matter what I put in there, Nothing fills you up. What Jesus is saying here is that is a thirst that's in every human being. And he's saying, I, Jesus, am the only one who can quench that thirst. Once you let me fill that vacuum in your life, you will never thirst again in that way. Here's what I mean. I came to Christ. I, I, I grew up Catholic and believed my whole life, really. But I think uh, 1979 was the turning point in my life when I came to Christ. I can honestly say, and I bet you can too, and those of you on Zoom, since then, I have not thirsted for, maybe I should really look at Buddhism or Hinduism, 100, 133, 130 million gods. I kind of like that. Or the New Age movement, I am a god. I like that too. I've never once thirsted for anything. I have to say in my life and probably in yours, this is true, isn't it? He fills you up in a way that doesn't mean your life is perfect, but you no longer are searching. You no longer feel incomplete. To the extent that you and I submit to Christ and make him our Lord, he fills us up to the brim, but more than to the brim. Go back to the text. Whoever drinks the water, first of all, if you drink the regular water, you'll be thirsty again. 13, 14. Whoever drinks the water I will give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The thing about springs is you have an abundance, which means once you have it, you can start to give it away right, to other people. Share the water of the gospel. But it springs up to what? Eternal life. Now he's really got our attention. And now, because it's a little after 10 minutes of seven, we're going to take our two-minute break and stretch our aging bodies. Don't go away. I'm going to turn my screen off. I'll be back in two minutes. Don't go away.
Yes, hopefully we're back. I'm so sorry. Those of you on Zoom, wave if you can hear me now. Yes, I'm seeing hands. So sorry. Someone messed up. <laughs> oh, gee. Who could I blame for this? Okay. Well, you didn't miss much in those 15 minutes, that 10 minutes we were gone. I didn't really have anything to say. I will quickly review, though. Um, what verse were we at before we left off? Um, were we that far? No, I think we were. I think we were. I, I mean, but when the, after the break, um, everyone who drinks verse 13 of this water, he offers her a drink. Um, she says, are you greater than Jacob? I'm trying to review for you Zoom people while the, these people are rolling their eyes at me. Verse 13, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty. Again, the water I give them, if they drink it, they'll never thirst. We talked while you were gone, while I was gone, I'm so sorry, about the thirst that's in every soul. Blaise Pascal, Christian philosopher, has this idea he has set forth, which is a hole inside of every soul that people try to stuff. Something's missing. They try to stuff it with money or fame or power or approval of people or sex or PhDs or whatever, and nothing fulfills us like Jesus Christ. So um, <laughs> I'm having to repeat here, deja vu. So in fact, he says in verse 14, the water that he gives them will be in them a spring of living water. Let me hit one more thing there. There we go. Um, a spring of living water, meaning welling up to eternal life. We'll have so much we'll be able to give it all away again. She is a very thirsty woman. She has had five husbands we're about to learn and thinks that the approval of men is going to fill up that hole in her life. Um, Let's see. So he offers her this water. She misunderstands verse 15. Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. She's still thinking in terms of physical water, but she has said, give me the water. She's receiving what his, he's, he has mentioned as being a gift of God. And he is indeed the gift. So, um, and I apologize to those of you on Zoom if I didn't go back far enough, but that's where I think we were, but I could be wrong. Um, so she says, okay, give me the water. He says in verse 16 what it looks like a, um, a complete left turn. Go call, call your husband and come back. He's got to get her to see her own sin before she can receive the gift of God. That's the first step. It's wrong to just have people pray a prayer without them dealing with their sin, repenting of it, confessing their sin, which means saying the same thing as God about what your sin is. Go call your husband and come back. Verse 17, I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you're right when you said you've had no, you have no husband. The fact is, verse 18, you've had five husbands and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have said, what you've just said is quite true. She tells a half truth. She's had five failed marriages. The husbands in each case have cast her off. She's now living with a guy, given up on getting married. So she is, remember, there's two types of heterosexual sexual sin. There is adultery, which is a married person having sex with someone that's not their spouse. You with me so far? Fornication is an unmarried person having sex with anybody, okay? Um, so 
he's gotten her to see that she, he has omniscience. He's able to know all about her. You've had five husbands. The man you now have is not your husband. There's no way he could have known that. It's supernatural knowledge. It's displaying that he knows everything, his omniscience. Verse 19 is almost humorous to me. Sir, I think King James has, I perceive that you are a prophet. Anybody have King James? Is that what it is? I perceive. I love that. It's, it's quaint. I think uh, New American Standard might too. NIV has, sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Is she right? Yes. But he's a lot more, right? So remember that in verse 10, the issue was who it is that asks you for a drink. She's getting closer now. He's not just some Jewish dude. He's a prophet. That'll come back in a second. But she still doesn't know what the gift of God is. But she has uh, admitted by saying he's a prophet, what she's basically saying is, yeah, you're right. Five marriages, I'm living with a guy that's not my husband. Verse 20. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Okay, what's she doing here? Okay, you're right. Yes, I'm an adulterer. Hey, let's talk about where to worship. It's a dodge. It's a distraction, right? But she's on the right track because she's talking about worship and she's standing next to God. Sir, uh, let's see. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain. Our ancestors, meaning uh, Jews, because there were uh, Abraham, Abram built an altar there. So did uh, Jacob. Um, so she's saying now, let's talk about worship. And it's all about the place, right? In Islam, the Muslims have a place. Mecca, secondary place, Medina, third place for them, believe it or not, Jerusalem. They pray facing Mecca. They know wherever they are, it's south, southeast from here or whatever. And they pray five times a day facing Mecca because it's all about the physical place. So she wants to know, you Jews think Jerusalem's the place. We think it's here, Mount Gerizim. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain. You Jews claim that the place we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, verse 21, and that's not as rude as it sounds. It's actually, a, it's like saying ma'am. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. What's going on here? She says, well, which place is the place? Notice that Jesus could have said, no, no, no. Don't try to say, change the subject. You got five ex-husbands. You're living in adultery right now. We need to deal with that. He lets it go. Doesn't mean he approves of her behavior, but he's willing to let the conversation go where she took it. So um, let's see. She's right that their ancestors did worship on that mountain in verse 20. And she's right that the Jews claim you got to go to the temple in Jerusalem for Passover and a few other Jewish holidays. What is worship? 
that's what we're going to talk about in the remaining time, as long as my microphone and my camera stay on and my, I'm sitting upright. Okay. A time is coming, verse 21, when you'll worship the Father in neither place. Well, what's the place? St. Louis, Tokyo, Oakhurst, anywhere. That's the point. A time is coming. When? When will that be? Um, it really happens as soon as people believe in the Lord Jesus, which is already happening then. It will come to complete fruition when he dies for the sins of the world and rises from the dead. I'll show you why in a second. Um, there's a time coming when, notice, and it's prophetic here. Did you notice that? There's a time coming when you will worship meaning what you haven't yet by the way you is plural in greek where you all will worship the time is coming where you um where am i there verse 21 when you will worship notice the father neither on this mountain nor in jerusalem she doesn't he doesn't answer the thing about jacob he doesn't answer about our, verse 20 really reads, not our ancestors, it reads our fathers, the fathers of the faith, okay? Father, father, father. He says, the time's coming when you're going to worship the father and only him, and it's not going to matter where you are. And the only way that can happen is if there's a temple, because you got to have a temple. The temple in Jerusalem was the place where the vertical, God, the spiritual, met the horizontal. The temple in Jerusalem was a place where sacrifice for sin was done. The temple in Jerusalem was where the word of God was taught, where people could give to the kingdom of God, where people could come to meet God and pray. You say, we still need a temple? Yes. Jesus is our temple. But in 1 Corinthians, we find out don't you know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? Only in Christianity is there such forgiveness for sin, not a covering for sin, which is a sacrifice, but a one-time sacrifice where Jesus pays the ultimate price, his own perfect blood, sinless life for the sins of the world. Once we believe in that, the Holy Spirit, God, third person of the Trinity we talked about earlier, comes to live inside of me so that I can worship just as easily in a 7-Eleven store in Bakersfield as I can on the top of a mountain near Yosemite, as I can at the ocean near the south side of Australia. It doesn't matter where you are. In a jail cell, in a hospital bed, no matter where we are, we can worship. It's incredible. It's really making worship possible. Neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. He's saying this around, depending on who you believe, 27 AD, 30, 29 AD. It's somewhere in there. Within about 40 years, do you know what will happen? The temple in Jerusalem will be torn down stone from stone. No longer, no longer needed. Because the Messiah has come. Their temple there in Gerizim, the Romans, by the way, also destroyed. As a way of showing you don't need that stuff anymore. We still don't have a Jewish temple. You Samaritans, verse 22, worship what you do not 
No. We worship, meaning the Jews, what we do know for salvation is from the Jews. Now, wait a minute. You say, that kind of sounds like a racial thing. It's really not. I'll show you why. He's saying, first of all, you Samaritans worship what you don't know. They dedicated their temple to Zeus, okay, a pagan god. They're worshiping the way they want to worship. They have Burger King theology. Have it your way. How do you want to worship? God has told us how to worship his son. I hope we get to it, but if not this week, we'll do it next week. What is real worship? Um, I don't want to give it away yet, but you probably already are figuring it out. You worship what you don't know. Listen, you can worship. I've heard people say, I don't go to church. I don't read the Bible. I don't need Jesus. I can worship God when I go to the forest or I stand at the seashore and I see the beauty of nature. Or when I lay on my back and look at the stars in the heavens, I can worship that way. And there's a very surface sense in which that's true. But you don't know the artist just by looking at a painting. You got to meet the artist, don't you? There's a big difference, actually. And we are told how God wants to be worshipped. In fact, it's all through his son because there's no other way. We'll get to that as well. We worship what we do know. Salvation's from the Jews. What on earth does that mean? Okay. Salvation is supposed to come from the Messiah, who is biblically Jewish, right? From the tribe of Judah, a descendant of David, descendant of Abraham. A Jewish male is going to be the Messiah. They know that. That's where salvation's from the Jews. Why else is it from the Jews? The Jews were the ones that were given the scriptures, not the Italians, not the Japanese, not the Irish, not the whoever. The Jews had the scriptures. The Jews, salvation comes from them, but they were never supposed to hoard it. They were supposed to give it to all the nations, right? That's Old Testament. Again and again, all the nations will come and worship the one true God. Verse 23, yet a time is coming and has now come. And he's standing there in front of her. Verse 23. When the true worshipers, here it comes, will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. We are supposed to worship, there it is, in spirit and in truth. What does that mean? It's helpful to take the opposite. What would be the opposite of worshiping in spirit and in truth? The opposite would be, I'm worshiping in the flesh and in error, okay? I think God is a giant banana in the sky with the face of a rabbit. That's who I'm worshiping. You're worshiping in error. I think God doesn't care about my sexual behavior or if I use drugs, he's fine with all that. You're worshiping in error. I'm worshiping in the flesh, okay? That's the kind of worship that says, Hey, everybody, look at me. I'm worshiping. I'm going through the motions. I'm doing certain ceremonies, which the Jews had. So did the um, Samaritans. I'm doing, I'm sacrificing certain animals and all important in the Old Testament. Don't get, don't get me wrong, but it was all pointing to one thing, the Savior. 
Okay, so the question is, if we have to worship true worshipers, which implies what? That there's a lot of false worshipers, right? I said there's 330 million Hindu gods. They're all getting worshipped somewhere in the world right now. And they're actually nothing at all. There's no God behind those idols, right? So true worshipers have to worship in the spirit and in truth. What on earth does that mean? Okay, first of all, in spirit means that worship has to be in spirit, right? You worship not from your flesh, you worship from your spirit. Why is Jesus the Messiah? Because Ephesians 2.1 says we are dead, not sick spiritually, dead spiritually in our sins. To be born, that's why we need to be born again. When you're born again, your spirit becomes alive because the Holy Spirit comes to live inside of you. With me so far? Apart from that, all you're going to be doing is worshiping in the flesh, going through the motions. The Father, uh, those, let's see, the time has now come because He's there now. The true worshipers will worship, I want you to notice, the Father. Why doesn't he say, worship me? Don't we worship Jesus as well? Absolutely. But remember the connection I said earlier, John, later in this gospel. Jesus says, he that has seen me has seen the Father. I and the Father are one. Remember that? The way to worship the Father. Why do we need the Son? Why we can't just go to the forest and worship the Father? There's that little problem called S-I-N. Okay, how many have heard of HIV, horrible disease? Every human being, listen, is born SIN positive, right? We're sinners. You don't have to teach a young child, here's how you sin, Billy. Now watch this. They figure it out, don't you? You figured it out. I figured it out. People are naturally sinners. We need a savior because we can't save ourselves. This woman has, is coming into the kingdom of God, stumbling in maybe, but coming into the kingdom of God for sure. They have to worship the Father in spirit and in truth. True spiritual worship, in other words. We have to know who God is and what he wants. You can't do that at the forest. You need the word of God. I don't care how many trees you stare at or how many oceans or how many falling stars, you'll never know God's will until you read the Bible. Neither, neither will I. None of us will. So in spirit and in truth, John 14, 6, what does Jesus say? I am the way, the what? Truth. He is the truth. Um, that's the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. Why else do we have to worship in spirit? Verse 24, because God is spirit. What does that mean? Spirit is invisible. Spirit, it means, although God uses uh, anthropomorphisms, meaning um, it's a stench in my nostrils, God says, or God doesn't have nostrils. He's a spirit being. Can you explain that? No. Far above my pay grade, right? Spiritually speaking. But he is spirit. He's not the man upstairs. I hate that saying. You know, the man upstairs, he's not the man upstairs. That implies he's a man like him and me, just a little higher. Wrong. He's God, infinite. 
omnipresent, everywhere present, omniscient, knows all things, omnipotent or omnipotent, has all power. That's not a man. God is spirit and his worships, worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. No other way to worship him. We're going to run out of time next week. Same channel. We'll, I'm, we're not getting, we're not done yet. So don't put your Bible away. We'll really discuss this worship thing. We'll also discuss what's the difference between worship and praise, or are they the same thing? Turns out, I think they're related, but they're different. Worship. We're going to look at Romans, which will define worship in a, a way that might surprise you uh, and might put you and me on the altar. But God being spirit, that's the only way to worship him. The word worship is proskuneo in Greek, and it literally means, and this sounds weird, to kiss toward has the idea of bowing down towards someone and kissing their ring, okay, or their hand, or their feet. Proskuneo came to mean worship in the sense of your face is in the dirt, bowing, absolutely bowing down. Generally, to introduce next week, proskuneo, worship is generally bowing down, okay? Praise is generally up. It's loud, it's boisterous. Worship isn't necessarily loud. Worship is humble. Worship is bowing down. Praise is closely related to thanksgiving. We'll talk more about this next week. Um, yeah, we're just about done. Um, we're going to close here. Um, it's been the night of technical difficulties. I apologize. Um, but we'll pick it up next week. If you have questions, you can always email me. If you don't get the notes afterwards, which have the recording, complete with my mistake of having the screen off, um, you can email me and ask for the email uh, to be on the email list that has the notes. We're going to pray, and then we'll get out of here. Bow your heads with me, and let's pray, shall we? <sighs> Lord, thank you for this time we could spend in your word, and uh, it's a mouthful, this whole chapter. Thank you for the divine appointments that you give each of us. Help us to recognize that that's what they are, God, and to use them as opportunities to witness, gently, not banging people over the head with the gospel in their own sin, but truthfully. Um, thank you for putting people in our paths. Help us to do that and connect with these people as Jesus did with this woman, we'll see. Help us to uh, use those moments to spread the good news, the gospel. Thank you of this picture of Jesus. He goes right to the heart issue like a skilled surgeon. But thank you that he's so gentle. He's so forgiving and kind to her, God. Lastly, help each of us to learn this week and next, we'll really discuss it, how to worship you in spirit and in truth. Thank you that those of us who are believers have your spirit living in spirit inside of us, God living inside of us, a louder conscience, our guide, our protector, the one that seals us. It's too good for words, Father. May we live out our faith in obedience to you in our deeds and our words and our thoughts, God. Help us to keep learning and growing. Thank you for this time we could spend in your word. We give thanks and praise to you, and we pray all these things in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. 
Those of you who hung with us on Zoom, we so appreciate it. Um, probably had 10 dark minutes at least there. Have a great night. I'm going to turn my screen off. God bless you.